The 33rd president of the United States of America, Harry S. Truman, popularized the saying, the buck stops here. Here being the presidency and the buck being accountability or fault. He's saying that other politicians can pass around blame all day, but if you're sitting in the Oval Office, when the finger points at you, you don't deflect it. This is a remarkably noble sentiment, if you ask me. I feel like a lot of people would be tempted by the vast power that a presidency holds, but would be a lot less likely to accept the singular responsibility of it. And today, we're going to talk a lot more about that concept of responsibility, who we give it to, whether they're using it wisely, and how much danger we could be in if they aren't. Hi again, I'm Izzy and welcome back to Politics Etc., the show where you and I try to navigate the ins and outs of our world's politics by looking at them through every possible lens. And I am excited about this one. We're going to look at some major current events that I've been following really closely that kind of blew my mind. So, if you like politics, sit down and take a listen. And if you're interested in shady government activity, that's right, people, put on your tinfoil hats, psychopathic doctors, and crooked executives having justice served to them, you might want to tune in today. That accountability, the finger pointing, that is supposed to be the point of political representatives of any kind. I have to disclaim this by saying that I'm speaking as a citizen of a first world democratic country, but when something goes wrong here, we blame the guy we voted in. Signing up to be a political figure means carrying the weight of that blame. So the more transparent and accessible the representative, the better. People feel more secure when they know whose hands they're putting power into. But today, I don't want to talk about our political representatives. I want to look at some of these same power dynamics on smaller scales. Who else has control over us, like a political rep does? And why might they not be as regulated as our senators or governors? Some of you might have heard the podcast, Dr. Death. If you haven't, you totally should. It's this fascinating story of a neurosurgeon, Dr. Christopher Dunch, who is allowed to keep performing surgery even while leaving a bloody trail of dead and dying patients in his wake. While discussing all the gory details, the real story revolves around the question we should all be asking. How the hell was this guy not stopped from practicing medicine? If I'm going in for brain surgery, it shouldn't be up to me to discern whether the guy holding the scalpel is a deranged psychopath or not. We put at least as much trust in our doctors as we do our political reps, if not more. And the expectation, at least what I think the expectation should be, is that they are just as, if not more, closely monitored. And I found that this is not actually the case. Hospitals, after all, are just businesses when you get down to it. And businesses are pretty much singularly focused on making money, or in this case, not losing money. You see, launching an investigation into a doctor takes a lot of that precious cash. And if the doctor in question 
does prove to be incompetent, admission of this would allow injured ex-patients or families of those dead at the hands of the doctor to take totally justified legal action against the hospital, which means settling six-figure lawsuits and the bad press surrounding these incidents sending other potential patients away. So the easier, if less ethical route is to politely suggest that the deranged doctor in question resign from their current position and relocate to another hospital where said deranged doctor can continue to maim and murder at will. And that's what happened to Dr. Dunch who ultimately botched surgeries on 38 patients in total. That is so crazy to me because I like to think that I lived in a world where whether resulting from incompetence, lack of training, substance abuse, or actual psychopathy, murder is murder and it's gonna get you 20 to life in a cozy prison cell. And this is true unless you slap a lab coat on the perp. Now, obviously, I'm being a little bit unfair here. Surgery is one of the most difficult professions, and there's a certain amount of risk that's out of the hands of the doctor. I know this. And like 98% of the people who choose to do this with their lives, we owe our endless gratitude. But it's those bad eggs, that 2%, that scare me. Hospitals are not countries, but let's imagine that they were. There is a hierarchy, and as you climb up that ladder from receptionist to scrub nurse to chief of surgery, each rung is responsible for the well-being of more and more people, citizens. What should be obvious at this point is that unlike your ideal democracy, the people in power are not held sufficiently accountable for their actions, actions that affect not only them, but those they are sworn to help. So now that you're a little more familiar with the way things work in the medical field, and emphasis on a little because I am by no means an expert, I want to pivot to one of our main stories today that might be even scarier than that of a serial killing doctor. You might have heard of a drug called fentanyl before. It's a really addictive opioid in the same vein of something like heroin. <laughs> There's no pun intended there. I hadn't heard of it before a couple of years ago when it started popping up on my newsfeed more and more. All I knew was that people were dying, a lot of people, and the cause was this drug. News outlets have dubbed this current era spanning from 1999 to the present day, the opioid epidemic. So I don't know about you, but the images that those words evoked to me were ones of brown paper bags being exchanged for stacks of cash in a back alley. You know, the flickering street lamp, trench coat, all very noir. These deaths I kept hearing about, I assumed, were those of people already entrenched in the consumption of illegal drugs. Don't get me wrong, this made their deaths no less tragic than anyone else's, but they were the ones you'd expect. The truth, though, is a lot more unsettling. Fentanyl's main praying grounds weren't nightclubs or street corners. They were hospitals. The drug was called Subseas, and it was an under-the-tongue spray to alleviate breakthrough pain in cancer patients. This drug actually did help in very particular cases. Since it's so strong, it's about 100 times stronger than morphine, it's supposed to be kind of a last resort medicine for patients who have built up a huge tolerance to opioids. If you prescribe it to somebody who doesn't have this tolerance, like a cancer patient who should be started off on a lower grade opioid, it will kill them. And it did. All over the country, this drug was being over-prescribed. 
it was found that as many as 51% of patients who were prescribed the drug did not meet the criteria that would have been the only thing warranting them taking it. Tons of doctors all across America were putting patients in harm's way. And I think it's safe to say that they can't all be psychopathic killers. So my first question was why? Why would they do this? In all the reports that I found, the answers split between gross incompetence and negligent greed. On the one hand, a survey for the FDA showed that only 77% of doctors were found to understand the rules around when they could and could not prescribe this drug. This extremely dangerous drug. Like, imagine if somebody told you that only 77% of chefs understand food allergies or only 77% of taxi drivers understand traffic laws. So yeah, that's the gross incompetence part. But on the other hand, a portion of that 77% who did know the rules broke them anyway, because they were being paid by the company behind Subsees called Inseas Therapeutics. Inseas knew that this drug was incredibly expensive and that it could make them a lot of money if they could just get enough patients to become dependent on it. So they set up a little dream team of doctors from around the states who'd be willing, with a little monetary incentive, to prescribe subsies in higher doses than was necessary to patients who didn't need it. Oh yeah, and the best part is that it wasn't just monetary bribes. Part of their little sales pitch actually utilized an exotic dancer. She would give lap dances to doctors in exchange for them agreeing to jeopardize the health of cancer patients. This is some Marvel movie supervillain shit, I swear to God. So this whole operation, thankfully, was finally exposed a couple months ago and the legal ruling on it was revolutionary. The execs at huge companies like Inseas Therapeutics are essentially regarded as untouchable. They're surrounded by this cushy layer of money, power, and scapegoats to push the blame onto. Think of any corporation-caused tragedy, of which there are many, and then think about whether or not the CEO is serving time for it. Yeah, I didn't think so. But in this case, he will be. The man ultimately behind all these deaths, John Kapoor, along with four other executives, were convicted of criminal racketeering. This is truly a big win. The company behind Subsees is in a lot of trouble. But we started this episode talking about the politics of hospitals, and I found myself wondering, what about the doctors? Are they going to be serving jail time? I spent a lot of time looking into this and I could only find one conviction of a doctor who was really high up and working really closely with the company. But the fact that this was such an epidemic means that there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of doctors in on it, taking bribes and potentially hurting people. It seems crazy to me, but I can't find anything more on whether they are facing consequences professionally or legally. The only thing I could find concerning this was after the fact, the FDA reported that although they had evidence that showed the drug was being mishandled in hospitals, there was not a single doctor reviewed, let alone decertified. And that is a direct quote. So now we can bring down billionaires, but not crooked doctors? Now, maybe there just wasn't anything printed on it, and maybe every case is being handled completely appropriately and internally. Or 
Maybe the doctors are getting a slap on the wrist and being allowed to quietly resign and relocate with not so much as a mark on their record. Like what happened with Dr. Dunch. I'd have to do a lot more research to fully understand this, but it seems to me that there are some scary dynamics at play in our medical system that rest on this lack of accountability. Fear of dealing with lawsuits and subsequent protecting our own, aka covering our asses, mindset. Internally, it seems like there are very rarely investigations on doctors, especially ones that result in them being stripped of their titles. It's funny to me how often dollar signs can take priority over ethical codes, even in the most noble fields. Okay, I want to pivot now. I want to ask you a simple question. Who has more power, the president or prime minister of a democratic country or the CEO of a business? I realize that power can be measured in a lot of different ways, but I'm not talking money or connections in this case. I'm talking power in the most dangerous sense of the word. As in, if this person makes a big decision, how many people could that decision directly affect? Or how many people does this person have direct influence over in some way or another? For political leaders, this is really easy to estimate. It's the population of their country. For America, for example, the President of the United States has significant power over 327.16 million people. He or she can affect the lives of these people directly if he or she wished to do so. However, because of the democratic conventions we have in place, they cannot do so unchecked. There's countless people who are able to insert their input and those with the power to stop the will of the president completely if it is declared to be unconstitutional. All of this is in addition, of course, to the relative transparency of the president's actions thanks to the media. That's something else we value in democracies, media freedoms, and knowing what our leaders are doing to the extent that we, as citizens, have a right to. So the president of a democratic country certainly has a ton of power, but as I've said, it's regulated accordingly. I'm of the opinion that the amount of power should always set the standard for the amount of regulation. So back to my original question, if we continue to measure power in people, the president's stats hover at around 330 million. As for our CEO, let's choose a company. I say Google. Google has become pretty much an essential to modern day first world life. Without Google, for instance, this podcast would probably not exist. The number of Google users per day hovers from about 3.5 to 5 billion people. And I'm just talking the search engine. Google users also encompass those that use their phones, computers, tablets, and the companies they own like YouTube. Not to mention the Google Suite, like Google Docs and Sheets and Drive. So the number of people whom a decision by the CEO of Google can directly affect is probably more like 5 to 10 billion. The population of the US is a tiny fraction of that. And you might be thinking that it's a bad comparison because the CEO of Google couldn't make decisions as potentially harmful as those made by the president. If Google changes and you don't like it, you're completely free to just stop using it, no harm done. But you couldn't just leave the country if the president were to do something unsavory. However, the decisions I'm talking about here aren't just benign ones like changing the color of the Google Drive logo or something. And even if you decided to stop using Google, the damage may have already been done. I want you to think about how much information you give Google access to. 
Every search you type, you're typing it into a giant conglomerate brain that does not forget. Every time you send a text on a Google phone or speak into your Google Home or watch a video on YouTube, you're feeding your information into that brain. And yes, I am sure there are constraints on what they can do with this information, but if there are, they're certainly not as transparent to the general public as the constraints we put on our government officials. Like, I'm sure if you asked the average person, they would know that the president can't commit a crime and get away with it. They'd be aware that there are regulations concerning that. But I doubt they'd be able to tell you what restraints executives power and what they can and cannot do with our personal data. Remember, democracy loves transparency, and that seems to be lacking here. So, Google. As it stands, our CEO has exponentially more power and less regulation. This is kind of counterintuitive to me. Companies are supposed to function within nations, subject to their laws, not the other way around. So how did we let this happen? Bear with me for a bit of a history lesson. In America, when the first big businesses started to arise, the country had to decide how we'd balance our democratic values with our economic ones. It was the late 1800s, and an oil company called Standard Oil was aggrandizing tons of wealth and basically killing off competitors faster than they could crop up. We've always been staunchly capitalist and functioned off the belief that you should be able to keep what you earn business-wise. But monopolies, like Standard Oil had become, kind of hinder that. They don't allow anyone else to break into the market. And is it really fair earning if you jack up your prices outrageously just because there's nowhere else your consumers can turn? This is why in 1890 we passed the Sherman Antitrust Act, which basically allows the government to dissolve monopolies where they arise to threaten the free market. This system worked really well up until recently, because now there's a lot of confusion over what constitutes a monopoly in the digital age. Companies like Facebook, Apple, and Google, referred to as big tech, have pretty much unlimited power in the domains they've created. But since nothing is tangible, the scope of the internet was not even imaginable to the lawmakers who passed the Antitrust Act in 1890, there's more uncertainty. Are these monopolies or not? Should we break them up? And the scarier question, should we have broken them up a long time ago? Have we already reached the point of no return and let them gain more power than anyone should have? So let's get into some of what they may be doing with all that power. I'm sure you, like most people, have run into targeted ads based off of Google searches. Like if you buy something online and then you see a bunch of ads for that company. And that's just following an algorithm. But sometimes, have you felt like the things you're just talking about while your computer's open start popping up in your online activities? That was a big scandal with Facebook a couple years ago. There's a video circulating of a couple who doesn't have a cat and has never had any reason to purchase cat-related products having a conversation about cat food next to their open computer. Next time they log on, their screens are filled with advertisements for cat food and toys. This, when it only extends to advertisements, is not unexpected. After all, America is a commercialist playground, but it's unsettling that these companies are listening in when we're not actively recording. Ultimately, the government is supposed to keep us safe from stuff like this. Our citizens' information shouldn't be at risk from corporations, especially not in a democracy. So the government is trying to keep us safe from this, right? Well, that is up for debate. 
because our country is decidedly not involved in a good government versus bad tech conflict right now. It's actually exactly the opposite. Google has contracts with the Pentagon, Homeland Security, and the US police force. Upon finding this out, I did a lot more research. While doing so, I did realize the profound irony of searching why is Google working with the Pentagon on Google. But I did find a great article by a guy who's been studying this alarming affair between Google and the government. In it, he calls out the Google empire as being profoundly anti-democratic because, he explains, almost all the decision-making power falls upon three executives. They exist in a democratic country, they peddle a democratic philosophy, and yet they sit comfortably removed from any actual democratic regulation. One of the issues that Google is apparently helping the government with is preventing the radicalization of the youth, as they fear that this is what leads to larger amounts of global terrorism. And the author puts it best. Technology companies, he says, are uniquely positioned to lead this effort internationally. They can go where governments can't, speak to people off the diplomatic radar, and operate in the neutral universal language of technology. Moreover, the tech industry has perhaps the best understanding of how to distract young people. These companies may not understand the nuances of radicalization or the differences between specific populations in key theaters like Yemen, Iraq, and Somalia, but they do understand young people and the toys they like to play with. Now this is scary. As a youth in America myself, I feel really uneasy about all my data Google has access to being used for government ends. I don't know how far this extends or how much has already been done, but there's certainly a problem here. We started this episode talking about accountability, finger pointing. It's one of the most important democratic values. It gives the citizens a voice and the leaders a sense of humility and fallibility, which is essential to good leadership. So I pose the question, if this is so important to our country, why does it not extend to our businesses? especially to those in the business of collecting our personal data or saving our lives. I'll remind you that these corporations have grown so big that they now have power on par with the governments they exist within. And they're not done growing. Are we shifting toward a world where our leaders hold arbitrary titles, but the hand with the money actually pulls the strings? The conviction of those big pharma executives from INSEE's therapeutics sets a great precedent that perhaps indicates a shift the opposite way. So if you care about this issue like I do and want to keep the trajectory in that direction, please vote in the 2020 elections. Many of the Democratic candidates have made clear their intentions to dissolve big tech. Or, if you disagree with me and think that the free growth of businesses like these is equally valuable to America, vote your way too. Just remember that democratic conventions are what allow you to do so. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. I'm Izzy, and this is Politics Etc. I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.